We're going to take the next section of Matthew as we work our way through the gospel. Just a quick little introduction and review. Um, We looked two weeks ago at Jesus, the compassionate healer and the condemning judge and the correcting teacher in Matthew uh, 14 and 15. And we looked at three areas of phony religion. The first one was empty worship. And we saw that at the end of chapter 14. And then we saw polluted hearts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the blind leaders. And those are three marks of any religion that would not be honoring to God that would be considered, in my mind, a phony religion. Uh, We've looked at the human traditions and God's truth. And that's what's going on here in this context. The Pharisees are holding on to their traditions traditions are a funny thing. Sometimes we do traditions and we don't even know why we do them. I'm reminded of a lady who came time to cook the Christmas ham and she had gotten the recipe from her mother who got it from her mother who got it from her mother who got it from her mother. So this recipe was well-aged and the meat always came out just scrumptious And so she had an opportunity one time to ask her grandmother, Mom, why after you season the meat and you do all the stuff you're going to do to the ham before you cook it, why do we have to cut the ends off? And she said, well, tradition has it that grandmother, years ago, when she got her ham, it was too big for the pan. (laughs) And she had to cut the ends off. And for years, they've been wasting the end portions of the ham because they thought somehow that induced some flavor into the meat or something. It had nothing to do with that. It was simply the fact that the pan was too small. Traditions are like that. Sometimes we get into a mode and we get into a tradition and we don't even know why we do these things anymore. And last week, we looked a little bit about human traditions, or two weeks ago, and uh, as far as cleansing the hands in a ceremonial sense, not just in a uh, get rid of the germs sense, but in a ceremonial sense, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had all sorts of procedures that you had to go through to make sure that you were ceremonially clean because they believed that Uh, besides other things, there was actually a demon that could uh, indwell your fingers and attach itself, and so they had to make sure that they had to wash that off. It was all kind of fairy tale belief stuff. But they came up with this long, you know, you had to do this, and you had to pour the water a certain way. It was pure tradition. It wasn't anywhere found in the Word of God. And human tradition does that. It takes outward forms that bring bondage versus God's truth, where it's results in an inward faith that brings liberality. Human tradition, a lot of times, brings these just trifle rules. They go by the letter of the law. Everything's got to be just exact. And God's truth points out that it's the basic principles that's important. It's the spirit of the law. That's what Jesus was teaching. Human tradition says that man-made laws are made that exalt men. That's what they do. Look at me. Look at all the the laws that I'm keeping. They weren't God's laws. These were the Pharisees who made up these laws. And when you look at God's truth, it's God's 
breathed words that humble men. They don't exalt men. And the other comparison there is human tradition produces religious piety. It produces death, produces pride. God's truth results in true holiness, which produces in humility and results in life. Well, today we're going to look at a context of Scripture where we see this really driven home. I want to talk to you this, this morning about faith in unexpected places. Faith in unexpected places. And look with me, if you will, to the text, and I'll just read it for us. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And the disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, and here's the key verse, O woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Incredible. You look at verse 28 where she says, Great, he says, Great is your faith. In the original language in the Greek, that, that word great basically means supersized faith. Do you ever go to McDonald's? Come on. We're in church, you have to be honest, right? I go to McDonald's probably more often than I should. This is confession time, my wife's here. But anyway, I like to go through and get number three, which is usually, I think, the quarter pounder with cheese. And, but I love their fries there. I just something about McDonald's fries. So, and I like soda. So I always ask them, you know, can I get a super size? And, you know, they don't bring out a bigger hamburger, but they bring out bigger fries and a bigger Coke. And that usually does me for the day. Well, that's the same word, great. It means mega. It means supersize. He wasn't just saying, oh, you have some faith, woman. He was saying, wow, I can't believe the kind of faith you have. It's supersized faith, mega faith. And what is it about this woman's faith that is so great? Because you wouldn't have thought that you would find faith in this place where Jesus is at. You know, the Bible speaks a lot about faith. It speaks a lot about different kinds of faith. We hear today people say, oh, I have faith. Well, what what does that mean? I believe. Well, what does that mean? The Bible speaks of little faith. It speaks of weak faith. It speaks also of strong faith, abiding faith, continuing faith, bold faith, rich faith, obedient faith, steadfast faith, dead faith, precious faith, common faith, Unfeigned faith, working faith, and all faith. What is the nature here, though, of this woman's faith? It says that she had mega faith. She had supersized faith. 
And this isn't the first time the Lord used this. If you look back at chapter 8, you remember in Matthew when the centurion came to Christ and wanted Jesus to perform a miracle on behalf of his servant who was paralyzed. You remember that? We went through that in chapter 8. And Jesus said to him, You know what? I have not found so great a faith in Israel. Same word. There are then two times already in Matthew where we hear about this supersized faith. And both of them, guess who these people were? Both of them are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And somehow, this great faith marks out, it sets aside those people outside the covenant of God. And that's where God honors their faith. Um, As we look at this faith this morning, it's really a picture, you might say, of saving faith, of the faith that saves. Because you can have faith, but it's a damning faith. It's a faith that will send you straight to hell. But this faith that this woman has this morning, even though it doesn't say that she was saved, I believe that the context reveals her heart. And I think that she was redeemed from sin based on the nature of her faith. Well, let's look first of all at the setting here. The setting. It says there in verse 21, Then Jesus went out from there, Where's that? Galilee, where he had been ministering, remember, for a long time. He'd been doing all these uh, miracles and whatnot. And it says that he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It says Jesus left Galilee. And there were several reasons for that. Two, really, political and religious. Remember, this was the place where Jesus was just being pressured by the crowds. And not only the religious crowd, but also the political crowd. We, we see over in, I think it's in John 6, where he began to um, talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and it says these people walked with him no more. But there was a tremendous amount of pressure on Christ. And at one point, after the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to come and they wanted to kidnap him and make him their king. That's how frantic they were. That political, kind of a military-oriented kind of a pressure. It was just building frenzy around Christ. And they were only looking for political things, maybe a fast meal that Jesus could provide, maybe a freedom from the Roman government. And they applied a lot of pressure to Christ. But not only politically, but religiously. Because we saw the story where the Pharisees and the, the, uh, the uh, scribes came to Jesus, even though he was out in the middle of nowhere. They spent a, sent a special envoy from Jerusalem to question him about, why do your disciples not wash your hands? We've looked at that in the last couple of weeks. And so there was this religious pressure coming as far away as Jerusalem, and it was just putting a lot of pressure on Christ and on his disciples. And they were always trying to confront him and to expose him so that they could undermine his authority in front of the crowd. It never worked, of course. But we see in Christ's ministry from this point on, more and more people are turning against him. And it's pretty obvious as you read through the rest of the gospel. 
You had the religious leaders, the political leaders, everybody who was initially attracted to Christ. All of a sudden now, their backs are turned. And they're beginning to move against Christ. Edersheim says it this way. Christ was saying distinctly un-Jewish things. He was saying things that Jews shouldn't say in his teachings. And that just ticked them off all the more. So it was this political and religious pressure that drove him to seek this place where there's this kind of a time of seclusion you might have. Remember, he tried earlier, he tried going across the Sea of Galilee to the northern shore, going up on a mountain, and remember what happened. The multitudes followed him. They gathered below. And he looked out and he had compassion on them. And everything was brought to a halt because of the crowd. And he also wanted to go to the other side of the sea, but the multitude was there too. He went to Gennesaret and out in the farmland where there wasn't any cities, and people heard that he was there, and they brought their sick from all over the place. So once again, he's seeking rest. He's seeking seclusion. He's seeking quietness, time with his own disciples. Remember, he's only got about a year left in his ministry. He's got a lot of work to do with his disciples. And so he sought this seclusion from the frenzy of Galilee, and he went north. He went beyond, if you will, the political and the religious jurisdiction, their arm of reach. And it says he went into the region or the parts, the Greek literally says the parts, of Tyre and Sidon. He went into, look at the map there. You can see where he was down there, Gennesaret. And you see how far, about 50 miles traveled up there. It's mostly through rough and mountain passage roads. The climate would be a lot cooler. It'd be kind of the, it's actually Lebanon is what we know it today. Mark 7.24, a comparative passage, calls, says that he went through the borders or regions. He went into the region And although he stayed on the border of the region, he he actually went in there. Mark 31 says he he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So he didn't just kind of wander near there. He actually went into that region. So he left Palestine. He left the land of Israel on this occasion for a brief time to go into what we know as Phoenicia. Mark calls this the Phoenician woman. And they were kind of seafaring people. They lived right there on the coast. But it was a deliberate withdrawal. He wanted to spend time with his 12 men. He's preparing for the cross. He has a lot to share with them, a lot to build them up and disciple them. Some people say, well, why would he go there? Because in verse 24 he says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why would he go out of Israel to do that? We're going to get to that. We'll explain that in a little couple minutes. But as we go through the text, we see clearly that he left Galilee and he ends up near Tyre in Sidon. And uh, in Mark 7, 24, it says, he went away to the region of Tyre where he had entered a house and he wanted no one to know of it. So you have to understand, he didn't go there to minister to people. That wasn't his purpose. He went there to get away from the crowds, to minister to his disciples. Obviously, he's God. He knew that there would be ministry there. 
As far back as Matthew 4, we see the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. It says in verse 24 of Matthew 4 that people were gathered out of that area north of the border of Palestine. In other words, they were coming into Galilee because they heard of all the incredible stuff that Christ was doing, the miracles, and and people were being uh, healed from demon possession and blindness and all sorts of things. Mark 3.8 says, From the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. They must have had rather receptive hearts to travel all that way. See, they were kind of, if you look at the map there, you, you can kind of see they were out of the reach of Jerusalem. They were out of the reach of the everyday Pharisee and all the law and everything. So their hearts may have been a lot more tender ground, a lot more fertile ground for the word of God for the ministry of Christ, than these religious leaders were. And even a lot of the people around Jerusalem and in Israel proper, their hearts were kind of hardened because they'd been burned down with all this Jewish law, these traditions that they had to follow. And their hearts just weren't open to the things of God. And so when they came to Christ, they just came to Christ for what he could do. Well, he gave us free meal. He could heal my friend or my children or whatever. And that's the only reason they were following Christ, was to see the miracles, to see the, the, uh, the display of divinity, even though they didn't recognize him as the Christ. And so we see that these, these people would come out and they would visit him. This area is a very kind of a remote area. A lot of the people there have kind of be kind of like living in the city versus living out way out in the farmland. You know, that's kind of what the idea is. And so that's the kind of the setting here for where he is going to be ministering. And so look at verse 22. It says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him. A woman of Canaan came and cried out to him. Now remember, he wasn't going up there because he was turning his back on Israel and now he's going to reach out to the Gentiles. That's not the point. He just wanted to get away from the crowds. He wanted to go into all the world over and over again. He never was resistant to coming to the Gentile world But God does have a plan. And his plan was to go to the house of Israel first and then to the rest. Now you look at this woman, first of all, you just kind of describe her. First of all, she's a woman. For her to cry out to a man the way she did is just, it's just not proper. You wouldn't do that. Let alone being a Gentile, let alone being a, from the land of Canaan. I mean, they were occupants. Remember, the the Canaanites occupied the promised land before Israel did. And what did God tell them to do? Go in and take possession. And what were they supposed to do? In the Old Testament, it tells us. You can read about it in in, in Deuteronomy 7 and other places. It says that the Canaanites were a cursed, doomed people. And they were supposed to be wiped out by Israel. Israel was supposed to go into the land of Canaan, wipe all these Canaanites out because they were pagan worshipers and everything, just everything. They were supposed to obliterate them. 
And frankly, the only reason that this lady was even alive was because Israel was what? Disobedient. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. So if there's anybody outside of God's, in a religious mindset, reach, it's this lady. It's this woman. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. Mark calls her a Syrophoenician. It's from the area of Syria and and Phoenicia or Syria and Lebanon today. And this is the woman who comes to Jesus. And she is one of those who would have repented in Tyre and Sidon if the Lord had done his works there. Remember when he said before, he said, if I did the works in Tyre and Sidon that you guys saw, they would repent. And you guys aren't even repenting. He was comparing these kind of people. In a real sense here, she's a genuine picture of genuine saving faith. She's outside of God's reach. She's an outcast. She's a sinner from the people of sinners. She had no right, no claim on the covenant at all. She has no worthiness to ask anything of Christ. She's a perfect example of a sinner who comes without right, privilege, worthiness to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And that's the only way you can come to Christ. You can't come to Christ thinking that you're all something. God hates a prideful heart, but he's open. He accepts a humble heart. These were people who worshipped idols. Just the fact that she's coming to Christ tells us that she's probably fed up with this idol worship that she's been involved in for years probably. Wasn't satisfying her. Wasn't meeting her needs. And so she comes to Jesus Christ, the only one that can meet her needs, believing in her heart that he can. See, that's the person who is ready for salvation. That speaks directly to the people who are coming to Christ. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Please, God, show me your grace. If it wasn't for your grace, I'd be lost. And Jesus says of her, you have great faith. You have super faith, mega faith. Now, that's a relative term. I mean, what I mean by that, to her, it was great faith. Why is that? Because she had no upbringing. She was brought up in a pagan home, in a pagan culture, in a pagan country without the promises of the Word of God, outside the Word of God, outside the Scriptures. She had been living in an area where Jesus never visited before. He hadn't done His mighty works there. And so based on the amount of the the content and the information she had, Jesus says, your faith is super. It's it's super-sized. It's incredible faith. You remember what he said to the disciples at one point? Oh, ye of what? Little faith. And you're thinking, wow. Why? He looked at them and he said, look at what you've been exposed to. Look at all the miracles that I've done in your presence. Look at, you've, you've eaten firsthand from miracles. You've, you've seen me do miracle after miracle after miracle. You've been impressed with my words. You, you no doubt know that there's some kind of divinity behind the work that I'm doing. 
And that's why he says, oh, ye of little faith, because they still questioned him. See, sometimes we find faith in unexpected places. You wouldn't think this woman would come to faith in Christ. And this is kind of the key to this whole passage. But her case, in her case, her faith is great. See, if you don't understand that the faith of the woman is the issue, you can't understand really what's going on as Matthew writes about this story. And so we want to zero in on her faith, the woman's faith. Five things here I see about the woman's faith. It says in verse 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Look at what she says. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. First quality of mega or supersized faith is that it's rightly focused. She didn't come crying out to the disciples. She didn't cry out to the religious leaders of her day. She didn't cry. She was tired of crying out to her pagan gods, frankly. So she came to Christ. And it says that she cried out to him. See, so many times we need to make sure people's faith is focused on the right object. You can have faith in a lot of different things, right? I mean, I could pick a flower outside and say, hey, I'm going to have faith in this. This is going to change my life. And you know what? There's enough gullible people. If I had enough backing, I could probably start a whole whole cult that worshiped little yellow flowers. And people would actually follow, and people would actually give money. It's all faith. Well, what's the object of your faith? That's the key. It says here that she came to him. That's what the object of anybody's faith who's looking for salvation has to be. It can't be in a church. It can't be in a pastor. It can't be in the elders. It can't be in some decision that you raised your hand or you did something like that. That's not going to save you. What's the object of your faith? Where is your faith directed? Is it directed solely at Christ? That's the only kind of faith that will save you, beloved. A faith that is directed at Jesus Christ. She put her faith in the right person. She used to worship Ashtoreth and all the different gods and the stupid deities that they had back then. And she realized that this isn't working. This isn't helping. Her child is demon-possessed beyond even reason. Daughter, severely demon-possessed. This is a broken woman coming to the Savior because she realized she didn't have anywhere else to go. A lot of times, people say they have faith, but when you stop and you begin to question what their faith is in, usually it's in something made by man, Some people believe in things. But a lot of times people's faith is pointless because it's not in the proper object. There's a lot wrapped up in that pronoun, him. 
She was tired of the, the deities and the, the, the little gods that she, and idols that she's been worshiping over the years. It probably is the reason why her daughter is so demon-possessed. Because that's exactly what was involved in the worship of their pagan gods. Satan was very much the center of that. And so she left her religious heritage, she left her friends, she left her system, she left her false belief, she left all of the prejudice that maybe she had, and she came to the only one who could help her, Jesus Christ. She put her faith in the right object. See, that's the kind of faith that will save you. That takes us to the second thing here. There's an element of repentance here for that very reason. She left all that stuff. That's what it means to come to Christ. You can't come to Christ and just continue to live the life that you want to live the way you want to live it. That's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is taking up your cross daily and following Him. Dying to yourself, dying to your desires, dying to your will, and asking God, what is your will for me? That's what I want to do today. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul extols the virtue of the Thessalonian believers because he says, you turned to God from idols. See, that's the thing that stands in the way of so many people today. Stands in the way of their making a commitment to Christ, an idol. And they may say, well, no, I don't worship a little stone thing in my living room. What are you talking about? It's a good book, and because taken some of the gals through. It's called Idols of the Heart. There's a lot of things that we idolize in life. It could be a motorcycle. It could be a number three supersized deal at McDonald's. It could be your job. It could be yourself. People even take God and they make him in their own image. When you share the truth about God, what do they say? Well, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't send people to hell. What are they doing? They're idolizing God. Peter says in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other name than the name of who? Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else to look, beloved. Only in His name is there salvation. There is no salvation found anywhere else. That's why it's so troubling when you hear Christians talk about people like the Mormons, who don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, or the Jehovah Witnesses, who also don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Well, I, I think maybe they could be Christians, you know, they, and they start kind of coddling people like that. They may be nice people. That's not the point. The point is they've turned Jesus into an idol, and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Never forget well-known pastor on Larry King saying, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, a Muslim could be saved, a Hindu could be whoever. I don't think God really cares. I think God cares about the heart, Larry. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Peter preached in Acts 3.16. He said, through faith in his name has made this man strong. In other words, faith in all that he is, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Acts 20, 21, Paul says that we preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. There are people who are dying and being damned to hell because their faith is in the wrong object. They believe in the wrong thing. They may believe very fervently, but it's wrong. It's, the, their object is wrong. Great faith, saving faith, has the right object. It's properly directed. It's rightly focused. And it involves repentance. Look at what she says. A woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him. She's focused on the right person. Here's what she says. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Someone once asked me, do you think it's that simple, somebody coming to Christ, just going, be merciful to me, a sinner? If their heart's right, it is. Sure. That's a great prayer, if it's meant from the heart. That's a prayer that's found in the Bible. Probably the only sinner's prayer that's found in the Bible. I mean, does mercy say this? Hey, you know what? I'm here to tell you what I deserve. Do you go to God and you say, hey, God, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, and here's what I want from you. Now you need to save me so I can get it. No, mercy says, you know what? I'm here. I'm before you, Lord, in spite of the fact that I don't deserve anything. Sometimes people ask me, how you doing? And I always kind of mess with their head. I say, you know what? I'm doing better than I deserve. Okay. And you can just see they're walking away going, gosh, is something going on that I don't know about? Is he in trouble? Or No, it's just a simple statement. I'm doing better than I deserve. What do I deserve? I deserve hell. Just like you. We all deserve hell. Eternal damnation in hell. Apart from God forever, 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 eternity. But because we came to God and we said, you know what, I'm, I'm, spite, I'm here in spite of the fact that I don't deserve anything from you. I'm just here based on what your word says on the work of the cross. And that's what this lady's saying. This lady is asking for mercy. But she's not demanding it. The one who seeks mercy is in a sense of unworthiness. One pastor said, don't ever ask God for things, just tell him what you deserve. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I don't want God to give me what I deserve. (laughs) I'd be in trouble 24-7. Are you kidding me? We all deserve hell. See, the woman didn't come saying, I demand this, I demand that. She came seeking mercy. And mercy says, you know what? I don't need any. I don't deserve anything. I need mercy. Mercy is a very, very biblical term. It's used over 500 times in the Bible. It's the very character of man's relationship to God, that man comes to God only to seek mercy. There's no worthiness there. 
David cries out in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercies. See, she is the total opposite of these scribes and Pharisees that we just saw last couple weeks come to Christ. She's the opposite realm of the spectrum. She's so far away from that, it's ridiculous. In Exodus 34, characterizes the people of God like this. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keep, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses responded and he said this, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord... Let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Or if you are the God of mercy, and I can find that mercy and grace, then hear my request. See, this is saving faith this woman has. There's repentance, there's a sense of unworthiness. Great faith has to have repentance. Saving faith has to require repentance. It's not something you add to your faith. It's required for faith in Christ. Spurgeon wrote this, Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. All the while that we walk by faith and not by sight, the fear of repentance glitters in the eye of faith. That is not true repentance, which does not come of faith in Jesus And that is not true faith in Jesus, which is not tinctured with repentance. Faith and repentance, like the Siamese twins, are vitally joined together. Faith and repentance are but two spokes in the same wheel, two handles of the same plow. Repentance has been well described as a heart broken for sin and from sin, and it may equally well be spoken of as turning and returning. It is a change of mind of the most thorough and radical sort. It is attended with sorrow for the past and a resolve of amendment in the future. Repentance of sin and faith and divine pardon are the ways and woof of fabric of real conversion. See, when we talk about repentance, we are not talking about adding that to our faith. It's part of faith. And what she's doing is she's coming, she's saying, God, I'm not worthy. I need your mercy, Lord. And that's what is required of us even today. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. Peter says, God is not slack concerning his promise or willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Romans 2.4, Paul writes, The goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. So the woman came. She turned from her idols with a sense of unworthiness. There was a sense of repentance. She was focused on the right thing. Third element there, she was reverent. She was reverent. We need to hear this today. There's a lot of irreverence going on in Christian circles today.
something as simple as God is my co-pilot, I believe, is an irreverent statement. Besides being theologically incorrect, why would you want God as your co-pilot? I think he's supposed to be the pilot, and maybe you're supposed to be the the, the co-pilot, or maybe the navigator, or maybe the guy that's cleaning the bathrooms in the back of the plane. I don't know, but I don't think you're supposed to be the pilot. See, there's this irreverence that kind of is facilitated in the church today. And she says, have mercy on me. Look at what she says. First of all, she says, oh, Lord. What is that? That's a, that's a, a clear kind of way of saying you're deity. You're deity. And then she says, son of David, which is basically saying, and I believe you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. It's more than just saying to him, oh, sir, because it can be used that way too. But she means more here. She's like the leper of chapter 8 who came and worshipped him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. See, she's she's acknowledging Christ's sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience. She's acknowledging Jesus for who he really is. She knows that he has power to deal with this demons, demon or demons that are possessing her daughter. Because he is the Lord. And then she calls him son of David, which is a messianic title. Which means he's the right to be king, that there's a sovereignty involved here. David was a king, and this Lord who is the son was also in the royal line. And so she sees the messianic name and this 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 title of Christ, and she says, you are the the son of David. You are truly the Messiah. She treats him with reverence. She treats him with dignity. I mean, it must have been kind of refreshing for Christ. I mean, the Jews were coming up to him all the time, the religious leaders of the day, and what are they calling him? Well, look at that drunk. Look at that friend of the publicans and the sinners and the demon-possessed. Look at who he's hanging around with. And they looked for every little way that they could smear the name of Christ. Well, not this woman. She had a reverence for Christ. And it comes from this hated Gentile enemy of Israel. This dear woman. I mean, people in our day are very irreverent toward the name of Christ. Would you agree? You hear it all the time. They're constantly using God's name in vain. And we need to be on guard that it doesn't creep into the church. I mean, there are some pastors today that speak about very, just dirty things almost, from the pulpit. As a way of sharing information about certain topics that shouldn't even be discussed. But she cries out to him, and she says, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. The word daughter means simply just a little child. Little child. Poor little child, living up in the, growing up in this pagan society, has been obviously exposed 
to the powers of darkness, and they've come to possess this child, this little girl. And this mother comes to Jesus believing that he has the power to be the Lord over darkness and affirms his power over Satan and her own gods and her own deities and everything else that maybe she walked away from. She realizes that he has the power to deal with this. See, this is what we have to come back to. This is what we have to have a fresh understanding of. So many times we have people within the church and they have major issues going on, and what do they do? They don't go to him. (laughs) They don't do that. What do they do? They go to this counselor. They go to that counselor. They try to figure it out on their own. They deal with this. They deal with that. talking to someone the other day about alcohol and the incredible damage that it has in our society. And I know that firsthand in my own family. And I just begin to wonder and scratch my head sometimes, and I wonder what good could come out of this? Taking a foreign substance and putting it in your body... Oh, Jesus drank wine. No, it's not the wine we have today, beloved. Not even close. And you begin to wonder sometimes when we expose our things, our, ourselves over and over to certain things and we drop the standard. What happens? We begin to justify our behavior. Well, we live in the age of grace. And we begin to compromise and it affects us it affects us it affects our families it affects our testimonies we need to think long and hard about some of the things that we do in our lifestyle so that we're not hindering the work of Christ she's reverent before God Fourthly, she's also persistent. She's also persistent. Look at verse 23. It says, But he answered her not a word. Jesus begins to set up kind of roadblocks to this woman. She's setting up barriers in her way. Because he's Driving home a point here. I mean, it's about this woman and her faith, true. But remember what he just came out of. He just came out of a big brouhaha with the the Pharisees and the scribes about why the disciples don't wash their hands in a ceremonial fashion. Remember that? And what did he say? He said, no, it's not what goes into the body, right, that makes you, you unclean. That's silly, but it's what comes out of the mouth. It's, it's what comes out that speaks from the heart. You can be as clean as you want on the outside. You could look like a stellar citizen. But your heart could be as wretched and as black as coal. Only God knows that. 
being a good person doesn't get you anywhere. And so he's setting this whole thing up to drive home a point. And so he begins to set up a series of barriers for this woman. I don't know about you, but I had to go through a series of barriers before I came to Christ. I remember when my brother first shared the gospel with me, I looked at him and I thought he had lost his mind. And my answer to him was, hey pal, I'm Catholic and so are you, so what is this stuff? What are you talking about? (laughs) And I had to go through barrier after barrier after barrier. Doubts, inabilities to understand. And that's what Christ is doing. He's setting up a barrier. Doesn't even say anything. Doesn't even acknowledge her. And you're thinking, how rude is that? And then his disciples, look at what they do. They came and they urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. That word cries out means that she's just continuing. She's not giving up. She's persistent. She's not giving up. Because she knows that Christ has the answer to her problem. I don't think many people, the first time they hear the gospel, they just drop everything and go, oh, I want to make that commitment. Yeah, that sounds great. How do I do that? Usually there's some bantering that goes back and forth at a minimum. Sometimes there's years that go by before a person's heart truly breaks before God and they can cry out and say, okay, now have mercy on me, a sinner. See, people today say that, oh, it's easy to become a Christian. I never tell people that. I have never told people that. You want to become a Christian? Are you sure? Oh, yeah. Don't have to pray a prayer or something? (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) Let Let me help you understand what it means to be a Christian. And most times, by the time you're done, they're going... Oh, I thought it meant like you go to church and you read your Bible. Oh, there's a little more than that. Jesus was very clear who he wanted following him. And when you truly spell it out, most people turn and walk away. They don't want anything to do with it. Not this woman. She's like, okay, you're going to be rude. You're not going to talk to me. I'm just going to keep on, yep, 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 yapping like a dog. Some people come to Christ because they have to struggle with their own doubt. They have to struggle with all these things. It wasn't easy for her to come to Christ. She comes with all of her heart and she pours it out and she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed, but he answered her not a word. He didn't even say anything to her. This isn't like Christ a lot of times. Some people say, gosh, you think he would have compassion on the poor woman? Oh, he had compassion. Like I said, he had a greater plan here. See, he had enough of the shallowness and the superficiality of all the crowds following him just to get an Egg McMuffin the next morning free. You know, uh, He was done with that. He's moving on. He had gotten all he needed of that in Galilee. And there was this shallow soil and this weedy ground and sometimes even rock-hard ground. 
And he wanted to test this woman. He wanted to pull this woman's faith to its full power. So he puts up barriers that she must persist to walk through. There's no indifference on his part. He's really looking out for this woman. He's really allowing this woman to have this great faith that this concludes with. Remember in Matthew 7, Jesus said the gate is what? Narrow, right? And few, few find it. Beloved, there's not going to be a ton of people in heaven. I hate to disappoint you. There's not going to be a majority of our population in heaven. See, sometimes we think that, well, no, that, that can't be. Oh, yes, that's what the Bible says. Few are the way, people that find the true Savior. It's a gate, and it's, and it's narrow, and it has the idea that you've got to struggle to get through that. Not that you're struggling is working out your salvation. That's not it. But you've got to come to the end of yourself. If you're not to the end of yourself, then you're not saved. There's an agonizing that goes into coming into the kingdom. And that kind of throws a monkey wrench into our whole evangelism plan in most churches today because we make it this quick little thing, you know, just as I am as a pastor, you know, sings the thing, come on down and you can kneel down and you can commit your life week after week after week after week. That's not saving faith. So he put up this barrier. He didn't even say anything to her. And his disciples are kind of frustrated at this point. <laughs> and so, you know, send her away. Get, get, get riddance. I mean, you have this woman screaming and yelling, wailing after us. Send her away. I'm tired of listening to this lady. Get rid of her, Jesus. Now, she, he could have, they could have been saying that one of two ways. Just get rid of her. Or, you know what, meet her needs so she goes away. You've done it before. We've seen you do it before. Just get it done. The tone of her voice is just a, it's kind of irritating. And this tension's building. And he was doing nothing. Probably thought, you know, you want to be alone with us. You, this lady keeps on screaming, man, there's going to be a crowd here in no time. Do you want that, Jesus? To deal with her. Heal her. Send her away. We've seen you do it a thousand times. And here's what he says. Verse 24, But he answered her and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. (laughs) You know what he's saying to this lady? Sorry, lady, you're not a Jew. That's what he's saying. Why would he say that? Seems kind of harsh. I mean, he healed the centurion's servant. He gave grace to a Samaritan. There's a lot of other Gentiles who have been healed and their needs have been met. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's kind of like me saying to you, you know what, you're not a member of this church, get out. What a rude thing to say, right? We're not going to care for anybody's needs but the members of Grace Bible Church. I mean, your eyes would probably go cross in your head if I said something like that. I think to the disciples, first of all, he's saying that the plan is on course. 
In other words, he hadn't turned his back on Israel yet. This hasn't happened yet. In spite of their hostility, in spite of all the hatred and bitterness and all the accusations, murderous plots against him, he's not turning. This isn't the point where he turns his back on Israel yet. He was still calling for them to repent. Matter of fact, he'd go back into Israel and preach to them once again. Even when he ascended into heaven, Peter stood up in Acts 3 and says, You have killed the prince of life. But at the end of that sermon, he says, But you're still the sons of the covenant. In other words, God is still calling out to Israel. The plan was that God would send the Messiah to Israel, and then through Israel, the world could be reached. But Israel rejected the Messiah. So he's, in a way, to his disciples, making a theological statement, I'm not turning my back on Israel yet. This is not the time that I move from Israel just purely to the Gentiles. I don't have to do anything here. Because I'm sent to the lost house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mark adds this in his account. Jesus said, let the children first be filled. In other words, I'm going to feed Israel first. You say, well, why is that? Because that's God's plan. That's the way he operates. He was going to go into the world, but the channel was going to be through Israel. But for the women, it's kind of, the woman here, it's kind of like a slap in the face. I mean, there's a lot of people probably at that point would have said, fine, get lost, and walked away, right? I mean, you get insulted like that? She had so much faith that when he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel... It didn't even affect her. <laughs> She's so persistent. She just keeps plugging along. It didn't even deter her at all. And the Lord was testing her faith. He separates her from the shallow faith. Look at verse 25, and we see the, the last thing here. She was, her faith was one of humility. It says, then she came and she worshipped him. After he insults her, she comes and she worships him. <laughs> it means she bowed down. She put her head in the dirt before him in worship. That kind of worship, that kind of humble worship is always received by the Lord. It's always accepted by the Lord. But it's the prideful that come dressed in all their stuff and say, oh, now we're going to worship God. Look at us. Well, that worship is not going to be received. You see it in chapter 8, 9, 14. You see it again in verse, or chapter 18 and 28. That kind of worship is accepted. Whenever he was worshipped, he accepted it because he deserved it, because he was God. But this is the right attitude. She has the right attitude going on here. And this is truly a seeking heart. It's a beatitude attitude. It's that, that beggar of the Spirit that's meekly coming before God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 
And even the Lord himself can't put up enough barriers to hold you back because you know that you have to go to the truth. You have to find salvation in Christ. Her request was so humble. Look at what she does. She just cries out. She worships him and she says, Lord, help me. She doesn't argue. She doesn't get into a big theological debate with him. How could you? No pride at all in this woman's spirit. She's so broken. She didn't turn to him and say, well, you think Jews are better off than anybody else? Yeah, figures. No, she didn't do any of that. See, some people come to Christ and it's almost like, hey, Jesus, I'm coming to you. Aren't you thrilled? Look at what you get in this package. I mean, you need me in your kingdom, Lord. That's not a humble spirit. That's a prideful spirit. That's a spirit that God hates. He's saying they're the only one. And I'm only here because I don't have anywhere else to go to. And you know what? I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) So you need to help me. Look at what he says. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. You say, man, he insults her again. Another slap across the other face. It's kind of getting painful, isn't it? This poor woman, can't you just feel? She's crying out on behalf of her daughter, and Jesus is just so stern with her. First he's silent, and then he gives some going to the house of Israel, and now he calls her a dog. I mean, you don't find that in evangelism explosion book, you know, how to lead people to Christ. You know, these, these words are not found in, in the modern-day evangelism seminar. It's interesting, there's two words for a dog in the Greek. One means a mangly, scroungel, mongrel, kind of a vicious dog that just runs and packs and everything, digs, eats garbage. There's another one that means a little pet. That's the word he uses here. So he's still being firm with her, but kind of like with a little twinkle in his eye. So it's not a vicious statement. He's not trying to, trying to step on her while she's down there worshiping him. I mean, when you stop and you think of those little pets, what do they do when you eat dinner? Yeah, they beg, don't they? around the table. And he says, this is a basic principle of life that when the pet dog comes around the table, it's part of the family. And everyone knows it's included in the house. But you don't give the food to them, but to the children. That's the way it is. It's kind of what he's saying to her. So another barrier goes up. He's testing her faith. And then she said this, yes, Lord, verse 27, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Wow is right. What an amazing statement. She says that, you know what? I'm not looking for anything big. 
I mean, he's, he's kind of delaying this whole thing. He's drawing out her faith. He's, he's letting her really demonstrate it before who? Who's there? The disciples. You don't think this was a lesson for them? Here he is talking to a woman who's a Gentile, who's pagan worshiper, who's from the land of Canaan, for goodness sakes. She's probably got a squealy voice on top of everything else, and he's actually talking to her. He raises a bear, and she doesn't even fight. She says, yes, Lord, you're right. See, she's not emotional here, but she's sharp. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She even uses his analogy, and she throws it back at him. (laughs) Talk about persistence. If he was going to make her Jewishness an issue, she'd go through that. If he made this analogy an issue, she'd turn the analogy to fit the situation. Nothing could stop this woman. Now watch our Lord's response. In verse 28. Then Jesus answered her and said to her, O woman, Great, supersized, is your faith. You know what? Let it be to you as you desire. And the Bible says her daughter was healed from that very hour. He wanted to make sure that everybody got the picture. It's not what's on the outside that counts. He just walked away from the Pharisees and the scribes talking about, oh, the ceremonial cleansing and the washing. He taught that lesson there. It's not that goes into the body, it's what comes out. Now he repeats it. He kind of uses that as an extension in here. And he's this poor woman who is so far out of the realm of, of their religious box. And yet we truly see where he says, great is your faith. In other words, she continued. Some of you here this morning may not have faith in Christ. You may have even prayed a prayer. You may have even cried out to him or whatever and nothing happened. I pray that you would take a lesson from the life of this dear woman. It's not easy not easy I pray that you would continue to search out the truth that you would read the word of God which is his truth and let it do its work in your heart I believe that was a saving day for that lady because she had great faith Spurgeon said this the Lord of glory surrendered to the faith of that woman She brought her great faith and she found an incredible blessing. That's what faith does. That's what saving faith does. There's no turning back. God wants to reach out. He wants to touch you this morning. Father, we pray this morning as we conclude our service, Lord, with a song. Lord, if there's any here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would know that this is a real thing. This is not some fairy tale that I'm pulling out of the clouds. 
That, Lord, you look around us and you look at the economic situation our country's in and the world is in, and you look at how political leaders are lining up and how everything is coming to this one world order. That's all in the Bible. You don't think that... I mean, you can read prophecy today and it's, it's almost like you're, you're reading the, the daily newspaper. The Word of God is true. And I pray that people here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ would would come to that understanding that there is such a thing as absolute truth and it's found in your word. And they need to dig it out. They need to read it. They need to explore it. They need to ask you for help in their unbelief that you would save their soul as they cry out to you. It's not easy. But it's needed. And Lord, for Believers, I pray that we would never overlook the fact that, God, that you, you are a God of power, that you could even save this dear woman and heal her daughter of demon possession. What things in our lives look like mountains that we can't climb? Burdens too big for us to carry. As believers, we shouldn't be carrying them anyway. We should be bringing them to the cross. Because, God, you're bigger than any circumstance that we may face. You're bigger than any trial. And Lord, you'll give us the grace to deal with whatever you have set before us. And Lord, we need to have faith that you are in control. You are a sovereign God who loves us dearly. And Lord, whatever comes into our life comes into our life for a reason. It's not by an accident. It's not by mistake. Father, I pray that we would learn and we would grow by your loving, healing hand. That you would lead us and guide us into maturity in Christ. Thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, amen.